Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, a conversation so controversial that our very podcast host is likely to disavow us ever existing. It's the third in our Melissa Matheson, the screenwriter series, with her 1997 film, Kundun. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thenextreel. And with that... We got the blot spot, Andy. Yes, we do. And Lot, friend of the show, has written in with his rebound on E.T. colon the extraterrestrial... Instead of a traditional blot spot, here's my history with E.T. Saw it as a kid equals I hated it. The alien terrified me. The film was like a horror movie, and I never wanted to see E.T.'s face again. Saw it about a year ago equals I was no longer afraid, but kind of underwhelmed. Seemed to lack a good plot. Saw it for the next reel equals I finally experienced the magic. Thanks for making me watch it again, because I now see what everyone else saw 35 years ago. Your rank seven, my rank 31. Oh, that's awesome. That is that's great. like a little next real gift. <laughs> and and I should say, the conversation, I have been crazy busy and have yet to respond to the conversation that's going on in the Slack group for Patreon uh, subscribers. But it is great. Uh, and, oh my goodness, so much Reese's Pieces controversy. <laughs> I never thought I would live to see such Reese's Pieces controversy. Good times. <laughs> it is time. Let's do trailers. My trailer, Andy, I'm going to go first because I, I am all about childlike whimsy. Yes, you are. What do you think about that? I think that's a beautiful thing. Oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, I've got Goodbye, Christopher Robin. I almost picked Flatliners. I am so glad I did not because this is a sweet and adorable behind-the-scenes look at the life of author A.A. A. Milne and the creation of Winnie the Pooh, inspired by his son. Uh, it is beautiful. The trailer is wonderful. It stars Domhnall Gleeson and Margot Robbie as the parents uh, and uh, a number of different uh, little Christopher Robins, but my goodness, is he adorable. Uh, it uh, is directed by Simon Curtis, written by Frank Cottrell Boyce and Simon Vaughn, and we should say of uh, Frank uh, Cottrell Boyce, at least, he's got uh, quite a list of credits, uh, like Code 46. I'm a big fan of Code 46. Loved that one. Um, Anyway, you look at his list of credits. You see, he's he is uh, he's a guy who uh, is uh, he's he's got a pretty good uh, scribe, pretty good scribe. This uh, Frank Cottrell voice. In fact, uh, his IMDb bio actually says he is quote one of the most respected screenwriters working in the English film industry. So, take that and do with it what you will. Um, uh, it's adorable, it's sweet, it's charming, and it's going to make a fantastic double feature with Saving Mr. Banks. What do you think? Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, the, the whole world that he created with Winnie the Pooh and, and friends, I mean, it's just, it's a magical world. It's, it's one that, uh, that Disney kind of did their own magic with, but I always also enjoyed, um, Milne's world and just the way that, uh, the stories unfold. It's just very easy, very pleasant. They're fun to read with the kids. And I, you know, getting a little bit of a biopic with him, I think will be an interesting, uh, interesting thing to look at. So I'm, I'm excited for this one. 
Uh, and I, you know, I don't know. I guess it's just it's just one of those cute things. I hope I enjoy it more than I liked um, Finding Neverland, which really kind of left me flat, even though everyone else seemed to love it. But um, this one I hope that I really click with. It opens uh, in the UK September 29th, uh, US October 13th, and Australia November 23rd, 2017. Those are all the release dates we know. And that's my trailer. Well, I like how you took the high road. And you, instead of Flatliners, went with this one. I did. I instead chose to take the low road. <laughs> <laughs> you did. I was going to pick something really uh, pleasant, like Bigs- uh, Bigsby Bear or something, which maybe I'll talk about <laughs> next week. But instead, I opted to talk about Happy Death Day. Oh, Andy. That's right. <laughs> A oh-so-clever take on uh, Happy Birthday. Instead, it's Happy Death Day. Uh, it's actually a pretty terrible title, but I... I, I it was one of those trailers that I saw the name of it. I'm like, oh, this is just going to be bad. But I couldn't help myself clicking on it anyway. And I watched it. And I, I have to say, as as much of the story as uh, it plays out as something that I've seen a million times in the past in many other horror movies, um, it had me laughing and smiling along because it just it's just so silly. It's basically a story of this girl... <laughs> who wakes up in a dorm room in a college and uh, is trying to figure out where she is. And then she kind of goes back to her day and goes to a party later that night where she gets killed. Um, but she wakes up and she's back in the bed where she was in the morning. And she it's like Groundhog Day meets Edge of Tomorrow meets, I don't know, like Final Destination or scream, something. Totally scream, totally scream. Yeah. And she's, she's reliving the same day over and over again, trying to figure out who is killing her and why? And and you know, maybe throw a little bit of the um, uh, what's the Jake Gyllenhaal movie? Uh, source oh, code. Uh, code source code. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like that. And it I don't know. It it doesn't. I don't get a sense that it's going to be anything great. But at the same time, I really enjoyed watching the trailer. I was smiling and laughing along with it. And I, I don't know. It's just one of those those silly horror movies that's probably going to be bad, but it could be really fun. And I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, it's uh, written and directed by Christopher Landon, um, also uh, wrote it along with uh, Scott Lobdell. And uh, Christopher Landon, you know, he's he's a writer who's been behind a number of uh, projects like Disturbia, which I thought was a pretty interesting film, um, Paranormal Activity 2, 3, 4, and The Marked Ones. So he kind of took over that franchise. I think he directed the last one. And then also Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, which he wrote and directed a couple years ago. Um <laughs> He's definitely in the genre, and uh, you know I'm really curious to see what he does. I don't know if I'm excited about any of his other credits, but I this one really piques my curiosity. The cast: um, Jessica Roth, uh, Israel Broussard, Ruby Modine. Nobody really stands out to me. It's just kind of one of those horror casts of of faces who you don't necessarily need to know. But it looked like fun. What do you think, Andy? I, surprising everyone, I'm excited about this movie. <laughs> surprising everyone i watched i was just like you i was like oh good grief what has he done now what has he done now and you went and i think you picked a winner this is going to be a a fantastic popcorn flick i think i was it it's it's taking groundhog day and scream this whole slasher thing and adding this this edge of tomorrow vengeance plot uh which i really enjoyed i think that was full of of great little surprises it it 
it's a it's a trailer that seemed very aware of itself and what it needed to do, and I think it did just that. It it described uh, it, it, the tropes that we are all very much aware of, and it it applied them and combined them and subverted them in, in just the right ways. I was laughing my butt off. I thought it was r- great. I, I thought it was great. <laughs> I can't well, believe it. I, can't I know. Believe it. I know. That, that makes me happy, though. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to yeah. be a crazy little film. Well, this one is going to open. Perfect timing, Friday the 13th uh, in October uh, here in the U.S. and Turkey. And then it's going to slowly roll out Singapore, Bulgaria, the U.K., Sweden, Argentina, Greece, Germany, Hungary, and then finally Spain, November 17th. So over the course of a month, it's going to hit all those places and and hopefully more. It looks like fun. Well, I'm glad, Andy, because you know you must walk to India, Andy. We have won. In 1937... The search for the Dalai Lama's reborn spirit led to a small village in Tibet. This is mine. You say this is yours? What else belongs to you? Kundun, Andy, the uh, the now hard to find a Martin Scorsese film written by Melissa Matheson, starring uh, a fantastic cast uh, led by Tenzin Tubtobsarong. That is the uh, actor playing Dalai Lama as an adult. It, it is the story of discovering the fourteenth Dalai Lama and his uh, maturity and growth into. Uh, the the Dalai Lama that we know today. What did you think? This is a film that's kind of mesmerizing. I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if it really uh, is something that I love, but it's something that I'm really fascinated by. And when I'm watching it, it just kind of takes hold of me, and just uh, I just find it a really fascinating story. I think some of that is is uh, Scorsese's direction for sure. Um, but also, I just think it's a it's an interesting story of this of this person born as the fourteenth reincarnation of the Dalai Lama and everything that kind of goes along with that, all the the ceremony, uh, just kind of the 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 way that he is taken care of and grown and nurtured and everything, paired with the uh, the history of the area of Tibet and how uh, China comes in and kind of takes it back, takes it over. And um, and it, it poses this large crisis in his life when he's a very young man and just kind of the decisions he has to make when he's leading this country um, with, um, I mean, I suppose you could say on one side, uh, you know, the, the very little um, wisdom because he's just a, a young boy. But at the same time, you could say a lot of wisdom because he's the 14th reincarnation. Exactly. Uh, 14 uh, generations of this guy yeah. and he knows where all the teeth are kept. Exactly. So it's it's a really interesting story, and I uh, I find it just absolutely mesmerizing. And I think Scorsese, um, if anyone was going to tell this story, I think Scorsese was the right man to do it because it's just it so fits uh, his style of filmmaking and everything he does here. It just feels like it's part of kind of the the religion and the beliefs within it. It's just it's a beautiful film. 
You know, yeah, I didn't connect with the film. I, I had real trouble watching it. I, I found myself, um, you know, it was beautiful in uh, Roger Deakins camera work. It was, you know, I like the colors. Um, and, and I found myself really attracted to the kids playing Dalai Lama, as the, particularly through the first half of the movie as he was, um, as he was growing up. And I, I liked them, but I liked them as kid actors. And, and I never connected with, with those kids leading up to the final sort of uh, you know, version of the Dalai Lama that we get uh, for the balance of the film. I never connected with them as the Dalai Lama. I was never able to get to that point of believing that this was a story about an important person and not kind of a parade of color and montage. And uh, I, I was thankful, I think, for Glass's um, crazy... Uh, score, which we can talk about later, because it was pretty much the only thing keeping me marching toward the end of the film. Uh, I was, I, I it was beautiful and sad in that uh, it is about a, a guy, I think, and a life and a time that is important. And I wish I wasn't so bored. Interesting. Had yeah. you seen it before? Or was this your no, first? No, this was my first time. Okay, interesting. You was this I, first time for you? Oh no, no, I saw this many times. Um, I was uh, in college working at the movie theater, and, mm-hmm. and uh, this was uh, playing. And this was one that uh, you know, working as a projectionist, we would kind of watch bits and pieces of this all the time. Yeah, and um, it, I mean, this it I, I don't know. It could be that this is one of those films that really it strikes you uh, more when you see it on the big screen because just everything really kind of envelops you. Um, I don't know, but um, I, I it really struck me then, and it's still I still found that it struck me quite a bit. So well, um, and and to your point, I mean, all I I'm watching on a big TV on a you know a low definition, like it was it was a fuzzy, you know, effectively a terrible transfer. If I had gotten it from Amazon, I would be furious. Uh, <laughs> and and so it wasn't the best uh, way to view the film. I absolutely recognize that, um, and. Uh, and so I, you know, I acknowledge that. I think you're, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. But you know, I, I do want to get to to Matheson as the the screenwriter, though, because so much of what we've celebrated about her so far has been about her ability to get in the the heads and hearts of of kids, right? And and be able to allow us to put ourselves into the role of the kid as the hero. And I wanted that. I wanted to experience that in this movie. I felt like if there is any character that I would love to to put my heart and head into, it's this young Dalai Lama to experience, you know, in, in some small part, the same thing that Elliot experienced as he saved E.T., you know, the same thing that uh, Alex uh, uh, experienced as he he and built his relationship with the Black Stallion, right? Those are things that I'm I'm really interested in and I wonder why I didn't get that here I wonder if it was because we had you know three different kid actors playing one character uh, leading up to our final um, sort of I, I guess I should say older teen adult young adult uh, Dalai Lama I, I wonder if I, I couldn't get the emotional connection to allow me to get into the story with that character um, I, I don't know what it was I've, I've really been been sort of spinning on this but the the bottom line for me is this film and this script did not make the same connection that i expected to have that i wanted to have and that i already got from the two films that we've discussed previously that's very interesting because i am completely on the flip side of that where i really connected with the kid and i felt his sense of 
um, kind of wonder at the world and all the little things that he was noticing, like the details that he would notice. I felt like Scorsese really worked at getting us into the the child's point of view so often in the way that he told the story and and everything. And I I, I really appreciated that kind of as a you know as a newcomer. I, you know, to the the world of Buddhism and the Dalai Lama, that I really kind of got to see it through this kid's point of view, who um, you know was kind of experiencing all this, uh, at least in this particular uh, reincarnation, uh, for the first time, and so I kind of got to experience it um, new, like he was, and I uh, I don't know, I, I really appreciated that, and I I kind of felt for him and his his uh, struggle with understanding stuff and wanting to wanting to get a sense of the bigger picture, but having people kind of hiding it from him because he was too young, um, and just you know dealing with things that you know it for a lot of kids are uh, largely out of what we would put them through, but you know when you're the leader of a nation and all of a sudden China invades the things that all of a sudden he now has to be responsible for. I really connected with all of that. And I, I found myself really appreciating the, the different incarnate or the different actors that they used to play each stage of the, of the Dalai Lama as he was growing up. And, uh, I just, I, I don't know, I, I, I did find that connection. And so, I mean, I, I agree to a certain extent, it may not be as strong as it is in some of those other films, um, but I guess, uh, I, I, I don't know. I felt it was still there though. Yeah. The more we, uh, the more we sort of talk about it and I think about it, the, the more I feel like, uh, separating the actors, uh, to create this character is doing a disservice to one of Melissa Matheson's great strengths. And that is allowing us to, to kind of develop a, a stronger emotional connection with a, with a single character. And, and that may be, um, a a function of the script itself that she has chosen to write a story that takes us from you know essentially baby Dalai Lama but you know manifested as like four or five through kind of early twenties uh, and showing them through different actors we don't have the opportunity for to to kind of you uh, I didn't feel like I had the opportunity to really get in the head of of any one of them I felt like I was always adjusting to this new actor uh and and I couldn't really get a get latch on to the story I was supposed to pay attention to um so it, it is it, it is interesting I'm it's is that something uh I'm, I'm struggling to think of any but is that something you find yourself dealing with in other films where you follow a character over a period of their life and you're jumping from different actors as they age? Is that uh, like I can't think of anything off the top of my head where where that happens. I know it happens plenty though. Yeah, I need to I can't believe we can't quite uh think of another one like that right. I mean, now. I can I can only think of ones where it's like a big jump like, you know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where we start with um uh, what's his name and jump to Harrison Ford, you know, yeah, where you yeah. start, you know, like that's a big jump, which is really kind of not so much. Uh, it's more timed just for kind of a, a flashbacky sort of thing, where as opposed to this, where it's like you're following his life and you're kind of going through a number of different points in his youth. That's interesting. I don't river um, Phoenix. Jeez. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't recall any that, that do that in a, a nuanced way off the top of my head, but uh, I, I don't remember an experience of feeling like this, where it was jarring enough or, or kept uh, d- prevented me from diving into the story uh, as deeply. Uh, you know, I, I looked at this, I, I think probably the old cynical 
vein started throbbing. You know what I mean? That I, I started looking at this as, and, and maybe as a in, in a different light on the heels of silence. Uh, that that this was, felt more like a film Martin Scorsese had to make, and not one that that and, and was much more of a, a passion project for him. And less of a uh, of a uh, one of his stories that I I typically do connect very well with. You know, it was a, this I, this was a stay in your lane kind of a, an experience for me. You well, know? it's interesting looking at other biopics that he's done, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, Raging Bull and uh, Last Temptation of Christ, I guess you could say, and Goodfellas, Casino, um, uh, even even his more recent ones like uh, Aviator and. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, he certainly has done plenty of biopics. Truly. Um, and I guess you could say Silence also is kind of a biopic. And it's interesting how he's looked at some that were more religious, like Last Temptation of Christ and This and Silence, all very much deal with people and their faith and kind of how um, the challenges of their faith and its place in the world. Yeah, devotion um, to a cause. I mean, it, it really, all of those. And in fact, Aviator, you can kind of say the, well, the same thing and not a bio, you know, in terms of biopics. It, but but the, the general sort of spirituality angle, it, it feels like now we have Scorsese's religion trilogy. You know what I yeah. mean? And, and, um, and, and this one, and, and I was not a fan of Last Temptation of, of Christ uh, either. I, these films land... Uh, you know, they're, they're, they just feel like a blunt instrument to me. And they don't, again, they don't just like the, the story itself that they chose to tell doesn't, uh, for me, uh, showcase Melissa Matheson's great skill in character development uh, and subtlety of character development. This film does not showcase what I think Scorsese is best at. And and that really is is um, you know it's, it's just lost in these in these films when he's trying to be too nuanced, doesn't cut it. Interesting because I, I feel like Scorsese really shines in this film and the way that he's telling the story, the point of view of of uh, the Dalai Lama throughout the film, the way that he focuses on details and ties in uh, just some fascinating intercuts that I, I really enjoy which feel very spiritual. It feels like a real connection to the Buddhist faith with the, the eyes and the water and uh, the, um, just the, the statues and uh, just the colors and the landscapes and just everything. And then I love how he does those, those amazing uh, dissolves that are like really quick dissolves of shots that are closer and closer and closer to something. Uh, it's almost like a zoom, but it's like cut, 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 or dissolve, 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 sure. all the way to something that's really... Uh, close. It's just, it's an interesting way to kind of uh, create that world and the way that he was playing with lighting changes when people would die. And, and uh, I, I felt like this was a, a, you know, a filmmaker who understands the, the language of cinema and loves to play around in it really at home and just doing something really interesting that for me felt really spiritual and really connected with the faith that he was depicting. I, you know, I agree with you. There were some fascinating sort of technological or, or structural things going on here in, in his direction. All of your points are, are right on. I mean, I, I enjoyed all this, the, the fascination with detail you mentioned, the, the close-ups, the sand. My goodness, we open and close on uh, on these the, the sand painting that is just gorgeous. I know nothing about 
the use of sand as a symbol. I don't know what it represents uh, in the film. It's it's there. I don't know why it's there. I don't know why it is swept up at the end. It means nothing to me, but it is beautiful. And I think that cements a lot of the uh, a lot of my perspective on what he's doing. It's beautiful and ultimately represents not a lot. It's it's hollow beauty uh, and 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 nothing that really allowed me to latch on to it. I feel like, um, you know, what you're saying, though, is a great demonstration of, you know, the filmmaker's skill and working with Roger Deakins uh, in, in making the camera do something that is interesting on screen. Uh, I, I, you're right. You're absolutely right. I was, um, uh, it, it is visually, uh, in, in many sequences, it's visually stunning to look at. And there are some sequences, too, that highlight great violence. Uh, they're very brief, but you remember who makes the film when you see them. Um, some of them I don't understand uh, exactly. I don't understand all of the delusions that, that the Dalai Lama is going through toward the end of the film. He sees his helpful comrades and suddenly they are slaughtered on horseback. Uh, he is standing in the courtyard. The visions? And, yeah, yeah. You, you, you didn't understand his visions that all those people were going to die? Yeah, I, I, it was Chinese. that that whole the whole uh, his whole sort of the whole spirituality of like you know being able to tell the future um, was was something I didn't I didn't truck with. I, it was not presented in a way that uh, that I understood early enough. So by the end, I was just you know what is he what is he seeing? Is he? I actually thought at the very end, Andy, I thought that he was so gone with dehydration and exhaustion that he was seeing his helpful comrades and waving them off and then we were flashing to what had actually already happened huh right okay. uh, that's how how sort of uh, it, it just hit me sideways i just i didn't I, I wasn't tracking with this film i wonder if it's a film that for you like if you watch it uh, again down the road if if things will click for you a little more like now that you've had a chance to stew on it you know if things will all of a sudden start um, piecing in place. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder. I it'd be it'd be a tough sell. I mean, I've I've watched it about. A, I've I've watched I watched it all yesterday, and I watched half of it again today, and uh, and it, and it didn't it it didn't lock. Um, so I I'm not like this is not a movie that I'm interested in, that I immediately say okay put this on my watch list to to watch again in six months. I'm just I'm really I'm, it's not that kind of a film for me, and I, it surprised me. I'm not I'm not mad. I'm just sad. Well, I, I would say maybe not six months, but, you know, like five years or something. Try it again and see see if it's something that you get anything else out of. Yeah. I yeah. think it's a really interesting film. And I I, I don't know. I, I guess it's just something that I ended up clicking with a little more. Um, but uh, but I don't know. I think that's something that's that's quite interesting about the film and what they're doing here. Reading some reviews of some of the critics out there, uh, Roger Ebert and Richard Corliss, um, they really seem to have a uh, uh, a connection with kind of the the way that the film is is structured, where it's not necessarily a film that is um, a plot driven film. It's it's more of a poem. Uh, Richard Corliss says it. Scorsese devised a poem of textures and silences, which I think was a, a nice way to describe it. And uh, and Ebert, same thing. He he's talking. He says the film's visuals and music are rich and inspiring. And like a mass by Bach or a Renaissance church painting, it exists as an aid to worship. It wants to enhance, not question. I, I just think there's there are things going on in this film that um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I've seen it enough where I I'm finding a way to kind of connect to it that that works quite well for me. And and 
um, for your first time. It just might be something that you're just, you know, you're, it's not there. So, uh, so that's why I'm curious to see if you end yeah. up coming back to it down the road and see what you think. I totally get that. Let, let's yeah. do uh, let's do first shot, last shot. Uh, the first shot of the film, uh, after we have titles, which are kind of over this black uh, ripples in this black water uh, and some scroll about the history searching uh, and the search for the Dalai Lama, we cut to a, a Tibetan mountaintop, a snowy mountaintop, and uh, with the wind blowing clouds across the top. And then we hard cut to an extreme close-up of a sand painting as the wind kind of reverse blows it away as the as the sand is almost like blown into place, mimicking the uh, actual mountain. And the last shot, we are on the uh, now grown Dalai Lama after his escape to India. He is looking through his telescope, presumably back across the border from India at the mountains of Tibet, while uh, probably listening to Philip Glass. <laughs> probably. <laughs> With his headphones. <laughs> He's big fan, big fan of the llama <laughs> class. Big fan. It's, it, you know, it's a beautiful pairing of imagery about the mountains and uh, just kind of the, I don't know. I, I For me, I, I'm like you. I'm uh, kind of clueless when it comes to the world of Buddhism. I don't know if the sand painting has something to do with the Buddhist religion or if it's something that just ties into uh, the world of Tibet. I, I'm not really sure. But I do find it a really interesting way to kind of um, use that sort of sand imagery to kind of tell stories and relay their history and kind of what is, you know, the, the beauty of their, their culture and everything. I, I find it really interesting. And we start with that. We start with, you know, uh, the mountaintop and then the sand. And then we, at, at the end, we are now separated from that. And now we're with the Dalai Lama in India looking back, hoping for the day that he's able to return. I, I thought it was a nice little uh, uh, pairing. Andy, I got to follow up on this because I, f- I feel like if we don't say this out loud, then we're going we're gonna to regret it. Uh, the, the sand painting is not a sand painting. It is a mandala. And uh, that is the representation of the world in divine form, perfectly balanced, precisely designed. It is meant to reconsecrate the earth and heal its inhabitants. Right, it requires millions of pieces of sand to make it uh, the a mandala five by five feet square. It requires teams of monks working anywhere from days to weeks, depending on the size of the mandala, to create this floor plan of the sacred mansion that is life. It requires the interplay of vivid colors and ancient symbols. This is uh, written by a wonderful, uh, the wonderful Sister Joan Chittister. Uh, and I actually, I see her a number of times in Chautauqua every summer. Where I'm going next week, I wonder if she will be there. Uh, and the whole story behind the mandala, like they spend so much time building this this place of peace, right? Building this sense of of peace and structure. Then why destroy it, Andy? Why do you think? Do you have a guess? Uh, because it never doesn't last, Pete. You are right, Andy. Are you cheating? No, I... <laughs> Because That's monks don't, they, monks they don't sweep cheat. it all up at the end. <laughs> because literally, it does not last. No, they destroy it because, yes, underlying message of the mandala ceremony is that nothing is permanent. All things are in flux, beautiful but ephemeral, moving but temporary, a plateau but not a summit. All things are called to balance and enlightenment and the fulfillment of the divine image in them, yes, but in flux, always in flux. So thank you to Sister Joan Chittister for uh, uh, for reaching her hand 
through the microphone and telling us we should really know what this thing is if we're going to keep talking about it. Uh, that is the mandala. And so does that change or cement uh, your impression of first shot, last shot, or the use of the, the sand in the film? Well, I think it's interesting because it, it shows the kind of, I mean, the first shot is a peaceful mountaintop, and then we cut to the mandala representation of it. And I guess it's, you know, as beautiful as and, and peaceful as uh, Tibet may be right now, it's not permanent. And it's, you know, it very much could change as it does when we get to the end and we see the the mandala getting swept up and, um, uh, you know, broken apart. And then we see him, he's not there anymore. So it does make sense. It does make sense. And, I, and it makes it more, all the more powerful when he takes the sand and he goes out where was he in India or just outside when he pours it into the water? I'm not sure if we knew where that was. Uh, it looked like one of the places that they cross on all those stones, yeah. but I, I'm not exactly sure if it's the same place or not. Yeah, it make you know wherever he was, it makes that that whole experience uh, I, I think more meaningful. Um, kind of understanding why it was destroyed in the first place. That his time in that place was done in flux. One, holy cow, whose job is it to separate all the sand, <laughs> the grains of sand <laughs> now that they've, I, I assume that they just mix it all up and dump it out and start over. Yeah, they start over, yeah. But, uh, okay, so then here's my question. Earlier in the film, or I should say midway through the film, dad dies. Uh, the Dalai Lama's father dies. They have the weirdest funeral I've ever seen where they take him out to the to the boonies and the you know he's kind of like a mummy all wrapped up they unwrap him chop him up they feed his body to the buzzards or to all the vultures flying around and then was it just me or do they scrape some of his blood and bones and meat and stuff into a pot and and put some sand in that like are they actually staining sand is that how they get some of the red sand I saw that too. I, my interpretation was the same. And good Lord, sand. Yes, I, that's what I saw. That seems something Does, that is not culturally in line with what we do. Now, I do the vulture thing. <laughs> we do, definitely do the vulture thing. But we don't stain sand, sand with the blood of our fallen um, family. We don't do that in our family. No, I, that is an interesting part of the ceremony. That's how. That's what I walked away with. But it, it, it doesn't feel like that was there was a clear answer to that for me. It was pretty um, clear, eye opening. It was eye opening. <laughs> it was clear. You should just you should take a clip of just that and send it to your dad and just say <laughs> FYI, FYI for the future. <laughs> I tell you, I've I've discovered a love of sand. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Let's oh talk about the cast. Casting by Ahmed Abunuam and Ellen Lewis. They brought us, uh, let's, we, you know, my, I think my favorite, Tenzin Tutob Tsarong, as age 15 Dalai Lama. He's kind of age 15 through 25. He's yeah. kind of the last 10 years of our story from the time China invades to the time uh, he has to flee. Right. Um. Uh, and I, I think he's great. I mean, he's actually the grand nephew of the Dalai Lama, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, none of these people, this was something that was kind of big at the time. They cast this with all non-actors, with real Tibetans who um, just, I, I don't know, I, I guess they just you know wanted to be a part of this project about the Dalai Lama and tell this story. And I, um, for a cast of non-actors, I was just 
really impressed with what Scorsese and team got out of them. I mean, there were a few times where I could tell that they kind of did some ADR and replaced some dialogue. But for the most part, I was like, they, they did a really great job of performing in here. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think this um, this guy, uh, Sarong, exudes the kind of peace that that I have I, I sort of have internalized as the Dalai Lama, right? And I, I think that's a, uh, he was just terrific. As much as I didn't connect with the film, uh, I thought his performance was, was really, really great. He was fun it was, to watch. It was, um, I, I, yeah, to that point, I felt um, every ounce of pain that he felt when he heard those those bits of news that caused him so much pain that he like clutched his chest and doubled over. Yeah. Uh, one time when he was learning about how the Chinese were, uh, you know, killing villagers and having the kids kill, like having the kids kill the parents, just a horrible, absolutely horrible stuff. And just the way that he reacted, I mean, I completely was there with him. I felt all that pain. It was. Um, a pretty powerful performance that he delivered here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other Dalai Lama, the kids, uh, Guryum Tethong and Tulku Jam Yong Kunga Tenzin, uh, were the age 12 and age 5 Dalai Lamas. Uh, also cute, great kids. Again, to your point about non-actors, they, they got great performances out of these guys. Yeah, and there's the two-year-old too, who's kind of my favorite little face, the Tenzin Yeshi yeah. Pai Chang. That's right. Who he's just stinking adorable um, when he's you know picking all the things. Mine, mine. You know, he's just so cute. Um, yeah, just just a great set of faces uh, to play uh, the Dalai Lama. I and again, I connected with every version of him. I really liked this group. Tencho Gyalpo as mom. And she was the niece of the Dalai Lama. I think it's interesting that they yeah. cast a few of his uh, kind of family members. She was uh, very tender, and I, I liked just the the uh, what she brought to the role. And as far as the emotional connection, I thought it was very interesting to see him going from you know somebody who is kind of really connected to his mom, and then to that point when he's just like, "Oh, mother, there's uh, you need to leave. There's no women in the in the." Uh, Monastery after dark, you know, just kind of kicking his mom out. Right. Siwang Migyur Kangsar uh, as the dad. I, I, I actually, I thought the dad was charming, and he felt like somebody I have seen before, uh, and and I couldn't place it, but he was a face that became uh, a, a face of somebody that that I know, like familiar, like collegial, like somebody that I've seen in other films. I have not seen him in other films. Uh, I, I thought he was uh, very charismatic on screen. Yeah, I think they all are. Um, uh, Redding, I really enjoyed Redding, um, uh, played by Sonam uh, Puntsok. Uh, Robert Lin played Mao Zedong. Robert Lin is he's kind of, uh, I mean, he's not a huge actor, but he is kind of one of those uh, Chinese actors who has been in a number of Hollywood films, um, kind of playing... Uh, the Chinese guy or whatever, you know, and it's, it's yeah. kind of, I don't know if it's uh speaks well. I don't but, think uh, he's played Mao more than once. No, I looked in his credits. This was the yeah. only time he played Mao, but I thought he did a really good job of playing Mao. Oh, I did too. I, don't. I did too. Uh, just really. And, and just the way that he delivers lines like religion is poison. It's like, Oh it's man. The opiate just, of the people. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was great. And you look at him, uh, you know what they did to him and his makeup and his hair. My goodness, his hair! Once you take 
the portrait of Chairman Mao and you make it a three-dimensional human, it's a whole different look. It's a whole different thing. Uh, anybody else you want to talk about? It's it's a cast of uh, people who are aren't actors, and so and they're Tibetan to boot. So I, I have a hard time with their names, and I don't fully. Uh, I, I mean, I don't really. Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot to say about anyone individual. I thought they all did great jobs. All right, so let's talk a little bit about getting it made. It's actually, I, I think it's an interesting story, and it starts with Melissa Matheson. As somebody who ended up kind of becoming Buddhist herself, um, she was really fascinated with the life of the Dalai Lama, and she asked him permission to write about his life. And uh, and uh, she, he gave her permission, and uh, they did a lot of interviews, and it was kind of the, the birth of this script, which is, I think, really fascinating. And she's the one who initially suggested that Scorsese come on board. Yeah, which, uh, I, again, I think that's a, a pretty interesting way to... Uh, to have this unfold where it kind of goes from her as the writer and eventually co-producer on the film and uh, bringing the Dalai Lama on board to tell this story and then leading to Scorsese, which I think is pretty cool. And it's, it's actually a side note. This is Scorsese's first movie that was a PG-13 film. <laughs> Again, don't you ever, do, do you, did you find yourself wondering, and I know it's because of the proximity with which we just watched E.T. and the Black Stallion, but don't you find, uh, didn't you at any point think to yourself, I wonder what this movie would have been like if Spielberg had directed it? Nope. That's not something that ever crossed my mind. That crossed my mind a lot. A Interesting. lot. I think you should this, watch it again and think about Spielberg. This totally doesn't seem like a Spielberg sort of story. Like, I, I can't wrap my head around Spielberg telling this story. Really? Uh-uh. That's another show in itself, clearly, but... Um, <laughs> so, this was shopped around a bunch. Uh, Universal turned it down. China was very much against this movie. Uh, and there you go. Disney takes it, releases it anyway, and now you can't find it anywhere. You want to talk about that? Yeah, China was so... I mean, the story is about China kind of taking back Tibet, which they said was theirs, but Tibetan people says, no, it's not. And it was this whole battle about uh, about this place. And the film depicts that and it depicts Chairman Mao and, and his take on it and uh, what the Chinese did. So it's not something that China was very excited to have depicted. And uh, yeah, they, they told Disney... Um, when Disney said we're going to distribute this, um, they threatened Disney's access to uh, China as a future market for their film releases, which was really interesting. Um, they just didn't back down, though, and they still released, released it under their Touchstone label. I was a little surprised by that. For some reason, I, I kind of felt like this would have fallen under their Miramax label. Um, so to put it under uh, Touchstone seems kind of a strange one. But um, yeah, China was uh, very upset at uh, Disney for that and the people involved in China banned for life Scorsese, Melissa Matheson and several other members of the production um, from ever entering China as a result of making this film. Eventually, it sounds like China did lift the ban, but um, they were pretty upset. And what I think is so interesting is that Disney was very, very keen on opening a Disneyland theme park in China. And it actually took them to apologize for releasing this film <laughs> in order for China to allow them to open Shanghai Disneyland last year. That, sir, is how you hold a grudge. 
<laughs> yes, it is. You must apologize. I apologize. <laughs> so interesting. Uh, and this it, is why yeah. nobody. This is why it's nowhere. That's why it's so hard to find. All most of the original copies, I think, are buried uh, with ET the video game <laughs> in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe we didn't talk about that crazy thing. But uh, yes. No kidding. So, uh, okay. Well, so here it is. You can find it at your library. Go watch it. Cinematography, Roger Deakins. Uh, beautiful cinematography. I really love it. Deakins actually said that he thinks that Scorsese wanted him to be involved because of his documentary experience that he had had and that he, uh, because it was a cast of non-actors, um, he thought that Scorsese felt Deakins would have an ability to kind of sense when a scene would end and when the actor finished a take and kind of have a better sense as to when to shoot and cut and everything, uh, which is kind of an interesting take on that. I, I didn't uh, I didn't think of that as a reason, but I guess I can see it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I some of the reading I've done on this says that, you know, this is one of his very, very best films. Do you agree with that? Is this one of his standout performance as a cinematographer when you look at some of the other stuff that he's done this was right between courage under fire and the big lebowski but he'd already done dead men walking and shawshank and hudsucker that's we've talked about him there uh barton fink we talked about him there again so he did you know he's he's got a number of films under i i just don't i feel like this was this was great and and lovely uh and it did some creative things but i think he's got awful lot of credits that are real standout performances i agree but i mean i do feel like the cinematography in this um him working with scorsese i think they take it to another level and i think this is i i would agree that this is probably some of the finest cinematography um out there it's just it really for me it's an incredibly uh stunning tour de force of of the way that a camera can capture a story. So, um, I'm in, I'm on, I'm on the side of those who say it is uh, one of his best. I, Andy, I used the exact same words to describe his work on Hail Caesar. And if I recall, you disagreed. Tour de force. That movie was garbage. <laughs> garbage. <laughs> I mean, but, but looking at his list, I mean, he has films. I mean, Sid and Nancy early on in his career, that was a stunningly beautiful film. I loved that. And, and you're right. He's done a lot of really gorgeous stuff. The stuff yes. that he's done with the Coen brothers, uh, looking at how he started developing kind of the, the way that you could modify the cutter, color palette in uh, the digital world with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I, I just think, you know, everything that he's done has been really stunning. And certainly the stuff that he's been doing with Denis Villeneuve has just been gorgeous. I think he's done tons of uh, beautiful stuff, but I think that it... Pairing that with the way that the story is told and the way that it ties into the story, I think maybe that's why I feel that it's, it's one of his best. Because I feel it taps into the spirituality within the context of the film. Everything you just said, I would apply to the assassination of Jesse James by coward Robert Ford, and it wasn't boring. <laughs> it has nothing to do with cinematography. Sure it does. Uh, <laughs> it, sure, it, it's a, which I would say is equally beautiful. I think it's a, a beautiful oh, film. I, and, I agree. Yeah, I agree. and I think it, it really celebrates his work, and I can sit through it. I think those two things are inextricably linked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, production design of this film was quite lovely, um, I, I will say. Uh, puts us but right there. It is boring. It's boring <laughs> if it's not moving. 
And there's not a lot of moving. Dante Ferretti uh, is uh, behind uh, production design and costumes. Franco Saraolo, uh, art direction. Massimo Razzi, art direction. Alan Tompkins, supervising art director. And Francesca Lo Schiavo, set decoration. I say all those names because... Uh, we should note it was not filmed in Tibet, and yet I felt like I was in Tibet. It is a yeah, it's a brilliant uh, world that these guys construct. Uh, because I agree, I kept going. I feel like this whole thing was like secretly filmed in Tibet. It's like totally, that, totally that uh, convincing. It really blows me away. But uh, no, these Dante Ferretti. I mean, he's been behind many, many beautiful things. Certainly does uh, a, a standout job here. Um, creating this world, which was shot in Morocco and uh, some stuff in Woodstock and British Columbia, Idaho, Rome, New Delhi, uh, all over the place. I mean, it, it's amazing how they make all of this feel like we are actually in Tibet. Uh, longtime collaborator Thelma Schoonmaker edited the film. Thelma and and Scorsese, I think, have a an incredible shorthand of how they tell stories. And a lot of what I give uh, uh, credit to as far as Scorsese and how he does those those beautiful um, dissolves getting closer and closer and closer and uh, the way that he's uh, cutting the visions and there's so much of that. I think really also um, you have to give credit to Thelma for the way that she plays around with that and, and understands so intrinsically, I think, what Scorsese is going for, that she's able to cut it in a way where it really feels like a Scorsese film. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the elements that that felt the most Scorsese feel Scorsese because of the way that they are constructed. They're literally constructed. Uh, and and those are the sections in the toward the second half of the film that really uh, start playing with cut and time. And that's that that I think is what gets you back into gets me back into the film, uh, and, and you know I I lament a little bit the closing. It's essentially his march across Tibet to India is uh, you know I I minimize it by calling it the eighteen minute montage of exhaustion, right? I mean, it, it's, it's not really, it was a, it's a hard journey, but it was, it happens. It, it takes 18 minutes. It's a little bit long. It's a lot of Philip glass, but the pieces of that, that are, are most interesting to me are the pieces that are, that are edited and paced, uh, with great vibrance and intention. And, um, and I'm, I, I it, it's a wake up. It's a wake up to the use of editing, um, to, you know, in, in service of pace. I, I, I really like that stuff, but she's great. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I really, again, going back to my point, I, I think that it will be an interesting one for you to look at later down the road. I think there are so many things that she's doing in here, um, paired with Scorsese that make it a film worth revisiting. Um, even if it is, you know, five, 10 years down the road, I think it's definitely something that might be an interesting revisit for you. I'll put it on my calendar. There you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be calling you in 10 years. Check. <laughs> Are you kidding? We'll be here. That's right. Uh, Philip Glass did the score. This was my, um, I mean, I had seen, uh, he had done the Koyana Skatsi, uh, that trilogy, which has a name and I can't remember what it is, but Koyana Skatsi and mm-hmm. Poakatsi and whatever the third one's called. Yeah. Other than that, I really knew nothing of Philip Glass. And this was, to a large extent, my entry into um, uh getting a sense of who he was and kind of what his music was like. Um, I really enjoyed the score. I, I kind of love how it 
fit with the context of the film. I just, I really loved it. I didn't realize that watching other movies down the road with Philip Glass, that it really is just his style and it's how all of his music sounds, um, which I certainly have uh, kind of grown to uh, understand and appreciate, but um, I don't necessarily like um, as many of his later scores as much as I like Kundun. You know, this is not a score that I I find I can listen to. I think your your commentary is is funny that this is just his style. It's as if you know Scorsese said, "Hey, you're a Buddhist, right? Like, do you have any extra like rack music you can throw at us?" And he just gave him some stuff from the glass vault and and just included it. It fits so well. It really is him. I I don't find it a, a terribly listenable score. Uh, it's there are a few tracks on it that are super beautiful and meditative, uh, and there's a lot of banging. And and you know his he's it, it really fits the film. It fits what I expect of Glass, um, and. Uh, that's that's about where where my connection to it ends the final theme uh the the final presentation of the theme as he crosses the border and and we close out the film i think is stunningly gorgeous it is a high point of the movie and not i know you're thinking just because it's the end (laughs) um i uh i'm a big fan of the score and i find it incredibly listenable but uh, (laughs) that's just me I, I, i i this is something that i think is just very relaxing and peaceful to listen to i really really love it um, so, uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> exactly, Andy. You're going to tell me how it did at award season. Surprising, uh, considering uh, China was, uh, you know, giving so much uh, hate and vitriol uh, to anybody who said anything positive about it or <laughs> released it. It still managed to get seven uh, seven wins and twelve other nominations in uh, the award season. As far as the Oscars go, uh, we talked about uh, the cinematography. Well, it did get a nomination for cinematography. Lost to Russell Carpenter for Titanic. Um, art direction, set decoration, also lost to uh, Peter Lamont and Michael Ford for Titanic. Uh, costume design, another Dante Ferretti. He lost to Deborah Lynn Scott for Titanic. And dramatic score, uh, got a nomination, but uh, but Philip Glass lost to James Horner, also for Titanic. This was uh, the year that the, the ocean liner pretty much sank everybody else. Uh, it did get some other nominations and wins. They all seem to focus on cinematography and the score uh, primarily. There were some other ones for Scorsese and stuff. Um, nothing for Melissa Matheson. So um, I guess other people didn't connect with the script like you didn't connect with the script. Yeah, nothing for Matheson. And I, you know, I don't know. I, it feels sadly redemptive. I don't, I, I, I take no joy in that because uh, she's just a super talented person and and uh, she was a super talented person and even though I didn't connect with it, doesn't make it, uh, doesn't mean it wasn't worth noting. I am clearly in the minority. Certainly, judging by the reviews, I am in the minority. So it's um, interesting, though, looking at her career. I mean, she didn't have many scripts that she did. I mean, The Black Stallion, E.T., The Escape Artist. Uh, she did one segment of Twilight Zone, the movie. This was all like 79 to 82. Right. And then she didn't have anything until 95 with The Indian in the Cupboard, right. uh, followed by Kundun. And then The BFG, which was posthumously, uh, um, you know, she had written it and Spielberg posthumously made it uh, last year. So not a lot of, uh, of feature credits for her. Um, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of a shame. What was your thought of this related to Seven Years in Tibet? They came out, uh, this came out a few months after Seven Years in Tibet. This was kind of that whole Hollywood doing this weird trend at the time where 
you know, they had two uh, asteroid films, you know, asteroids hurtling toward the Earth and mankind had to save, yeah. uh, you know, stop it. And they had a couple of those and it was weird. And this was one of them where Seven Years in Tibet and then uh, Kundun. Seven Years in Tibet for me really felt like, you know, Hollywood people saying, well, we can't make a movie about uh, Tibetans because Americans aren't just not going to like it. So let's make sure we're telling a story about a white man who's over there in Tibet. And, and that way we can get, uh, you know, Americans to, to go see the movie. Um, it just felt very uh, forced, that particular story. Even if it is a real story that happened, it just felt like, you know, the typical American way to go about telling a story right. of the Dalai Lama. Um, and so I really didn't care for that film. Um, this film, on the other hand, I felt um, much more connected to. I felt like it really um, worked at placing itself in the in the Tibetan culture and in the world of the Dalai Lama. So I found I personally had much more respect for this particular uh, telling of these Tibetan stories. Well, Brad Pitt was also banned from China. If that makes you feel any better, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and. Eventually lifted. I, I wonder if Brad Pitt and Martin Scorsese had to apologize also. Like I, I kind of want to know that, right. And if they had to apologize and say, we'll also, we'll come help build Disneyland. <laughs> right. Because we know Brad Pitt's been back to China. That's right. <laughs> How'd it do in the box office? Uh, well, you know, Scorsese, uh, considering this was a movie that, uh, you know, people were struggling trying to get them uh, off the ground, he still got a budget of $28 million to tell this story of the Dalai Lama. It's called the which, ironic budget of austerity in, yes, in right. Tibet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, which, yeah, it seems like a, a pretty healthy budget for a story that's, that likely seems like one that would have a hard time finding an audience. Um, as an investor, I would have gone, really? You think you're going to make money off of that? Um, uh, Touchstone did give it a limited two-screen release on Christmas Day 1997, along with the glut of other holiday releases that came out in that period. As good as it gets, Afterglow, Mavion Rose, An American Werewolf in Paris, Jackie Brown, Mr. Magoo, The Postman, The Education of Little Tree, Wag the Dog, and The Winter Guest. Yes, it was a very heavy uh, Christmas uh, release day. Considering all of these movies were released just one week after Titanic opened, though, it's safe to say they all drowned a bit at the box office. Kundun had a wider release on January 16th, but that didn't help boost its popularity, especially since Disney was not pushing it. It went on to only make $5,686,694 at the domestic box office, or $8.5 million in today's dollars. Doesn't look like it had any international releases, as far as I could tell, probably due to the uh, controversy with the Chinese government. Unfortunately, this means Scorsese's film had an adjusted loss per finished minute of uh, $261,484. Adjusted loss per finished minute, the album. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> God, I love your acronyms. I love them so much. We we should probably head right over, Andy, and uh, and rank it. We should. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel or swipe over in your show notes and you'll see a link for uh, Kundun right in Flickchart. It'll take you over there and you can add it to your gallery and we'll see how it stands up next to our list. What's first? All right. First up, we have Kundun or Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. I'm going to have to go with Hot Fuzz. Sorry, Dalai Lama. <laughs> now I have guilt. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> Tibetan guilt. I don't think that's a thing. You know, I will say the Dalai Lama seems like an awfully fun guy, though. 
Yeah. Like, I just have a sense that he enjoys himself and enjoys life. And uh, I have a feeling he would appreciate Hot Fuzz. <laughs> I think he would too. Kundun or Atlantic City, little Louis Mall. I'm going to say Kundun. Uh, I'm uh, predictably Atlantic City. Okay. Well, we, let's do we it. Go. Are you ready? Yep. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock, rock, paper, scissors. Rock. I guess I was a little predictable. <laughs> I'm just going to go rock, paper, scissors over yeah, and over again. Yeah, I just do it over and over and see when they line up. <laughs> okay, uh, Kundun takes that one then. Kundun or Gremlins? Gremlins. Uh, Gremlins, please. Yep. Kundun or The Thin Man? The Thin Man. I'm, I'm going to say Kundun. All right, here we go. I, I'm I'm pretty flexible on this one, though. I am not. I, I I appreciate that. I'm just thinking about this a little bit. It's It was a fun film. Um you know, I'll give you The Thin Man. It was a really enjoyable watch. It was an enjoyable watch. Thank you. Kundun or Alice doesn't live here anymore. Oh, a little Scorsese battle. I'm going to say Kundun. Interestingly, I think I am flexible. I will give this to, to you. Um, I would say Alice naturally because, you know, Christofferson. But I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give this to you. Kundun or Village of the Damned. I'm going with Kundun. I think I'm Village of the Damned. Okay. Here we go. Let's do it. One, One two, two, three. Paper, paper, scissors, scissors. Paper. There we go. Oh, I like this. I, I like the way this works. Yeah. I tried tricking you. <laughs> Kundun or Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Oh, definitely Nick I'll and go Nora. With Nick and Nora. Yes. Kundun or Splash? Splash. <laughs> you know which way I'm going. Please. Definitely Splash. It's a Tom Hanks thing. What can I say? Kundun or The Illusionist? I'm going with Kundun. Uh, the Illusionist. They had too many problems with uh, with Paul Giamatti's uh cop character in The Illusionist. It just got, I, the more I thought about it, it just got so silly. <laughs> the marbles uh, in his mouth, was that part of it? Frustrating. No, it's just, it's just, you know, it, it, the way that he, at the end of it, he just kind of laughs the whole thing off, like, oh, they got, they got me. <laughs> Psych. Uh, just, uh, didn't hold up. I'm sticking uh, so, with it. All right, I'm sticking with Kundun. All right. Here we go. One, One two, three, three papers. scissors. Oof. All right, well, there you have it. Kundun is 220 out of 308. I think it's a strong film, but I don't have a problem with its ranking because it's not one that I would watch too often. How's I, that? I actually, I, given our conversation, you, you said it. I don't, I don't hate the film. I was bored. I don't hate it. There is a lot uh, going on in the film that's beautiful. Uh, and uh, the, the given the performances from n- Tibetan non-actors, gorgeous, uh, fantastic you know, work. It didn't come together as a whole for me, but I will take you up on this uh, watch Kundun in five years uh, test, and uh, and and we'll we you know I'll let you know. I'm not gonna watch it until then. <laughs> there you go. This is one though that I, man, I don't know if Criterion is able to get a hold of it, or I don't know if they're afraid of China and repercussions. Like I, I wonder if Disney is just kind of keeping it under lock and key because they just have now has Shanghai Disneyland and they don't want uh, to anything to affect uh, their business dealings. Um, you know, I, I'm just curious, kind of what uh, if if this will ever have life again, or if if old DVD copies are really going to be the only way you can ever see it now. Right, right. Curious. Yeah. What is this for your letterbox review? This uh, ended up at, at a four star for me. I uh, found it to be quite a strong and powerful film, and I liked it. Your feeling about the movie, as usual, is buoying my, uh, my feelings about it. Uh, when I wrote my review uh, of it, it 
it's reasonably negative, focuses more on the boring part, and it was coming in at two stars. I think I'll give you a two and a half. And is that a like? No, it's not. It's not yet a like, Andy. So how do we how do we uh, determine <laughs> what that's going to be? I think I, I think if it's just two of us and there's a like and a not like, it defaults to like. Okay. I think we should default optimistic. So it'd only really be a not like if both of us did like. If it. both of us say that it's a not like, yeah, I think that's fair. I am fine with that. So that puts it at uh, three and a quarter on our uh, letterboxed. Uh, where it, now we are at the end of our Melissa Matheson series. Uh, was, it was a, a nice, uh, nice set of films, uh, and uh, we're moving on. Our pen, the the last film before our uh, July break. What yeah. is that? We've got our uh, our listeners' choice episode. We're going to be talking to uh, li- n- listener uh, Nick Langdon from Down Under. And we're going to be talking about uh, the one Edgar Wright film that uh, has had a wide release that we have uh, not yet talked about, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Oh, I can't wait to talk about this. You've already watched it. I have not watched it again, uh, I am, but I am so excited to do so. It's, it's, it's a fun one. It holds up well for you? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. Oh, what a relief. Uh, until we get into that, Andy, i got to go to bed. Okay. Well, I've got a couple beetles fighting in the yard. I've got to go separate them. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, I, as as we are wont to do, I didn't like the film as much, so I went for a five star Amazon mm. review uh, on on my list, and uh, I will uh, deliver it to you now. A great movie that you will never forget. Over the last thirty years, I seen bits of the movie, but too busy to sit and watch the three hour film. When I did, finally did, I was shocked how good it is and why I waited so long. I was eight when it came out. The movie is so intense. The three hours fly by and leave you changed forever in some way after it. It's not for kids under 18, please. That cannot be expressed enough, as some scenes are extremely hard to watch. But you do, and you will always bond with others who love this poignant greatest movie of all time. To own it on Blu-ray is complete once again you will be changed in some way after seeing it five stars isn't enough wow i know that's exuberant that is very exuberant well i've got a one star not so exuberant by oklahoma apache who says don't buy it the movie was brooding plotting and boring Typical of the times i think it was striving for deep and philosophical but wound up being pathetic Save your money. Oh. Now, Andy, you will note that uh, this film is not three hours long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it, right. It wasn't made 30 years ago. That's right. It wasn't even released on Blu-ray. No, it wasn't. Why are we reading these stupid reviews, Andy? Because Amazon is dumb, Pete. Amazon is so <laughs> dumb, Andy. <laughs> That's right. They have all of the uh, the star ratings, uh, except for one that we found. Yeah. All the star ratings, weirdly, are connected to the deer hunter. <laughs> for both of us, this is not an internet fluke. We are in different locations. If you go to the Kundun page right now, 
you will see that all the reviews but one are for the deer hunter. Ridiculous. This is, again, part of the Chinese-Tibet controversy and conspiracy that to this day is preventing reviewers from being able to review this film on Amazon. So crazy. Conspiracy. Thanks for nothing, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.